You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, multiple SpaceX employees fired after an open letter criticizing Elon Musk. What this says about his leadership and what it means for Twitter. Plus, does AI have feelings? Google just suspended an engineer who claims the answer to that question is yes. We will have an in-depth conversation with Google's former AI ethicist about the limits and power of this technology. And crypto traders go from feeling the fear of missing out to straight up fear. We'll talk to MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor about his big bet on Bitcoin and if he has any regrets. SpaceX now has fired several employees involved in an open letter criticizing the behavior of CEO Elon Musk. This according to an internal memo that began circulating among staff this week. The letter, seen by Bloomberg, called Musk's behavior and tweets, quote, a frequent source of distraction and embarrassment and called on SpaceX leadership to condemn and distance itself from his, quote, personal brand. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow here now to discuss. So Bloomberg obtained a copy of this open yep. letter. What exactly did it say? Yeah, so this is a small select group of employees who called on SpaceX's management, including Gwyn Shotwell, the COO and president, to, to basically publicly distance itself from Musk, what he says, what he believes, what he was doing, because they felt that it was, quote, an embarrassment. Uh, and that it was basically impacting the work that SpaceX was trying to do. This was the view of a small number of employees. It was shared as sort of something you could sign via a QR code through internal messaging channels, and it picked up some momentum. You know, they did get signatures uh, until management acted. What exactly did management then say? Right. So in a second internal memo, which was sent by Gwyn Shotwell, the company's COO, which Bloomberg has seen, they basically said this wasn't helpful. You know, they conducted an investigation into the origins of this open letter from staff. And as you said, and I think we had the quote from Gwyn Shotwell about sort of the broader impact of it, they ended up firing they, what they said, a number of employees. We don't have a firm number on how many it is, but this is what's interesting. She calls this overreaching activism. 
you know, so clearly there's a group of employees within the business who have strong opinion on this. What she says elsewhere in the memo that's frankly too long for us to share on the screen is that the this select group of employees were putting pressure on their peers to sign something that they didn't believe in. These are, I'm paraphrasing Gwyn Shotwell's words. Did a bunch of employees sign it? And our, we've seen a range of numbers up there from several hundred to several thousand. Mm. SpaceX has 12,000 employees around the world, essentially. Um, so it gained traction. Mm. Um, but ultimately, you know, what Gwyn Shotwell goes on to say in that memo is that this is a distraction from their end goal, and their end goal, as we know, is getting to Mars. Well, this isn't the first story in the last few weeks about Elon Musk's right. behavior at SpaceX. There was another story about accusing him of sexual harassment. Right. And Gwyn Shotwell also defended him in that instance as well. Correct. Right? So last month, Business Insider reported that the company, SpaceX, settled with a former contract employee in 2018 for 250,000 US dollars. And that employee in question was a contract air steward uh, aboard a SpaceX jet that Musk would use to travel. And, and straight away, we should point out, Musk denies it not only denies mm -hmm. the claims made, but he, he actually goes on to say in a series of tweets earlier in the month or last month that he basically saw this as a political attack on him, that it was sort of a calculated uh, initiative to, to impact his reputation, um, you know, and he questioned the source who was the original source of the Business Insider story. So regardless, we don't get to the bottom of it. I should point out, SpaceX does have a comms team, a PR team. Mm -hmm. I message them regularly. They are real people, but they have not responded to multiple requests for comment on this story, on the open letter story. So, you know, what we have to go on is these internal messages that Bloomberg has seen. Interesting. There has been some other news for SpaceX today. Yeah. They did have another successful launch. I mean, this is what it all comes back to, down to. So today was kind of another bog-standard Starlink launch, another three, 53 Starlink satellites deployed to orbit. But it was also a milestone for reusability. It was the 100th launch using a proven, a flight-proven rocket or booster. In other words, this is the 100th time that SpaceX has sent up a rocket that has previously flown and landed it successfully. And it's just changed the game, right? This is the whole point of the SpaceX story, that this reusability angle allows them to go with such regularity that it becomes routine, but also that it makes access to space much more affordable for little satellite providers and themselves building out the Starlink network. All right, well, TBC to be continued, as right. I'm sure this narrative will be. Bloomberg said love, love, thank you. Thanks. week, a Google engineer working on the company's AI development team was suspended after claiming a chatbot actually has feelings. Blake Lemoyne was placed on paid leave last week after he posted on Medium that he had encountered a, quote, sentient AI, igniting a fiery debate about the possibilities and limits of this cutting-edge technology. Dr. Margaret Mitchell, Hugging Face chief ethics scientist and researcher and former Google AI employee who worked on uh, the AI development team, joins us now to discuss. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us, or I should say, Dr. Mitchell, given your expertise, do you think Blake Lemoyne is right? Does this AI, does this bot have feelings? Uh, well, okay. well, no, I, I don't think it does. Um, I certainly don't think it has feelings. Uh, 
definitely not consciousness or sentience, uh, which, which is what the claims have been. So what does this, though, tell us about the potential or power for AI and bots to fool human beings into thinking that they're real? Yeah, there's a few things going on. Um, on the one hand, we have uh, psychological effects of um, interacting with things that are human-like. Um, so uh, we, we tend to anthropomorphize. Um, we tend to put intentionality um, into things that we're, we're, that we're inter interacting with that seem human-like. Uh, I think people are sort of used to doing this with their pets and things, you know, creating like whole dialogues and conversations, um, but also with like, you know, uh, stuffed animals and Tamagotchis and uh, things like that. And there's also been psychological studies showing that we have a propensity to um, impute intentionality uh, into um, non-conscious beings um, when they show uh, some sort of properties like speaking, uh, like vulnerability um, or, or movement uh, that's aligned with human-like movement. Um, on the other hand, we also have a lot of companies working in AI using the language of human cognition. Um, so saying things like chain of thought, saying things like reasoning, um, you know, essentially comparing the models that they're working with to the brain, which makes some sense, but you really have to temper that with, with the details of this essentially being um, a, bunch of, a bunch of calculations. Um, so we have a few things going on, the psychological illusions uh, and the language that companies are using around the technology they're building. So given the complexity of this, what are your biggest concerns about, for example, these transcripts that, that Blake Lemoyne published where the computer is saying, I'm scared of dying. I'm scared of being turned off. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I echo um, a lot of researchers in this space um, where I think we all sort of feel like sentience is, is not the point here. Um, I think it's I think it's important to note that we are not going to get an agreement on sentience or consciousness anytime soon. People are going to see sentience. People are going to see consciousness, um, and that will probably go on, you know, indefinitely, where we just have a disagreement. Um, but when you do have people starting to see sentience and consciousness, um, it starts to bring up things like, um, you know, like robot rights, all this work that's been done on what the personhood of uh, these models might be. Um, well, at the same time, you have technology that, you know, essentially discriminates, you know, against black and brown people, um, poorly represents women and reflects misogynistic viewpoints. Uh, so there's something to be said for an obsession with the personhood of AI and AI systems um, and thinking about the rights that they might have while not actually doing good work on the rights of actual people. Um, on top of, oh, I have so much to say, but yeah, you have another question, I'm sure. <laughs> well, you know, and of course, you know, the history behind this is that you were fired for your work in sounding the alarm about sexism and racism in, a, in AI at Google. So it sounds yeah. to me like you're saying this isn't the problem. We shouldn't be asking if robots have feelings and rights. We should be asking yeah. if AI is gender blind and color blind and making sure um, that we're focusing on all of these other things that are far more important. 
Yeah, I mean, so it's not gender blind. It's actually uh, targeting gender in negative ways. Um, mm -hmm. And so, for example, we know that a lot of these systems are trained on um, text data from, from websites that have uh, misogynistic tendencies um, and uh, websites that are predominantly uh, white and male um, and, and actually U.S.-based. Um, so there's all these kinds of things that are being um, propagated by these systems that are really problematic. Um, and they become even more problematic when people start to be affected by the systems as they interact with them. Um, so in the case of consciousness, um, you have the concern that people might be persuaded to do horrible horrible things. Um, you also have, you know, concerns around bullying and hate bots uh, and these kinds of things that can, you know, really hurt people. Um, and then, you know, you also have um, these subtle effects of, you know, in search ranking results, what will tend to appear at the top of that ranking. And if it's a function of these sorts of language models, um, as Google, for example, has said, um, they are, then you're going to have these bias effects influencing search results in such a way that you tend to see the viewpoints of white men, you know, at the top of the search ranking results as opposed to, you know, black women. And that is sort of a uh, echo a chamber effect where it's like uh, the privileged gets more privileged, right? Privilege begets privileged while the marginalized become more marginalized. Now, Google has come out saying that in this particular case, when it comes to Blake Lemoyne, that you know, hundreds of researchers have interacted with the same technology, haven't expressed these concerns. I also sat down with Alphabet and Google CEO Sundar Pichai last year and asked him about concerns around AI from within Google itself, from people like yourself. I asked him what keeps him up at night. Take a listen to what he had to say. Anytime we, you're developing technology, there is a dual side to it. Mm -hmm. I think the journey of humanity is harnessing the benefits while minimizing the downsides. The good thing with AI is it's both going to take time. I think I've seen more focus on the downsides early on than most other technology we've developed. So in some ways, I'm encouraged by how much concern there is. Hmm. And you're right, even within Google, you know, uh, you know people think about it deeply. Margaret, do you think he and Google are leading on these issues in the right way? No, clearly not. I mean, everyone, I think, at least in tech, is familiar with this notion of tech solutionism. Um, and there's no lack of PR and comms around the benefits of AI and really trying to push it as beneficial for humanity and all these sorts of things. It's, it's a very small minority who speaks up um, about the da downsides. So I would say that um, Sundar's characterization, characterization is false. Um, and frustratingly false. Um, and one of the reasons I think that there's a desire to steer away from the downsides, um, in addition to you know concern around uh, profit, is that it also starts to open up liability, right? So if you have systems that you can show work worse on black women, then now it starts to bring up questions of discrimination within the systems. Um, so it, it behooves companies uh, to try and say, oh, the downsides are, you know, are being over-examined and try and kind of uh, shut that conversation down. But I think what's actually happening is that the small set of people who have been speaking about ethical concerns are starting to be listened to because people are seeing the negative effects. 
Um, and I, I think that's really what's happening is a desire on the corporate side to shut the conversation down for a lot of sort of incentives they have. And then people actually seeing the downsides and that having an effect on what gets reported. Do you think LeMoyne should have been suspended? Uh, no, I don't. Um, I So I should say that um, uh, Blake and I are really good friends. Uh, we work together at Google. We wrote a paper together actually on how to um, mitigate problematic biases in, um, in machine learning systems. Um, he's a very, very bright guy. Um, so uh, I'm a little bit worried that there's sort of this reductive narrative that there's something like fundamentally wrong with him or something. Um, he he has a lot of dimensions, um, and I think Google could have done a much better job at engaging with him rather than this, you know, very alienating uh, sort of experience that they gave him instead. Um, I think it shows a weakness on Google's part to be able to... Um, uh, to be able to be open to different kinds of experiences and perspectives. So what are your biggest fears if Google continues to develop the technology at the pace that it is developing this technology, continues to, you know, potentially not listen to this, as you say, minority of voices that are speaking up? Paint the picture of, of what you fear the world could look like if Google continues on this path. Oh, no. <laughs> that is a very big question. Um, and I'm not a good painter. Uh, I should mention <laughs> I'm a computer scientist, so I might not, you know, be as uh, eloquent at this. Um, but, I, you know, we're already seeing a lot of uh, what we can expect to happen in the future, but even worse. Um, so just recently, someone released a ton of hate bots um, and then made the model available to the public. Um, and so we are going to likely see an increase of hateful, um, intelligent-seeming systems um, across our interactions online and on social media. Um, and this includes things like bullying, as well as really problematic uh, persuasion into sort of more ex extremist um, uh, er areas. Um, I think we're going to see uh, further sort of marginalization and worsening of power differentials. So as, you know, a company like Google amasses more and more um, ability to affect people's sense of, of what's true in the world through search ranking results, uh, through the sort of uh, products they're making, um, it means that the voices of people who have less access to the internet, for example, are going to disappear more and more while Google hmm. amasses more and more power. Um, and so I'm very, very concerned about how much this sort of technology moving forward empowers Google um, and the sort of lack of respect uh, that I've seen for very serious ethical concerns. You know, um, misinformation obviously is one. Alongside some of the models that have come out recently, we're not going to know what's real. There's going to be text-based text misinformation, so, so news that's wrong. Uh, Image-based misinformation, so images that look real that, that are not real. Um, and video-based as well, and also audio-based. So essentially, all of the main ways that we consume information online will now no longer be very easy uh, to trace back to reality. Um, okay. And that means mass misunderstanding. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> scary. Um, <laughs> Dr. Mitchell, uh, 
this we could have this conversation for hours and I, I know we're going to be having it for years. I'd love to have you back to talk more about your work at Hugging Face. I know that there you are taking a different approach to a lot of these issues. Um, but because of commercials, we're going to have to leave it here. Um, Dr. Margaret Mitch Mitchell, Hugging Face Chief Ethics Scientist and Researcher, um, thank you uh, for joining us today and help us work through some of these very complex issues. We'll have much more ahead. Stay with us. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. TikTok says it has reached an agreement with Oracle to store data from U.S. users on Oracle servers. The deal has been in the works since 2020, following concerns of security risks linked to the Chinese-owned app. This news comes the same day BuzzFeed shared that leaked audio from dozens of internal TikTok meetings revealed U.S. user data has been repeatedly accessed from China. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. I want to dig into this and how the Fed rate hike is impacting the world of VC with Mike Volpe, a partner at Index Ventures. Mike, great to have you back with us. Look, Thank it's you. been an incredibly volatile week, a lot of uncertainty about the future, a lot of people saying the R word is inevitable. What do you think? Yeah, I'm going to start by saying that I'm a Lakers fan, so I'm relatively <laughs> indifferent about all of the events uh, over the week. Well, we're not but, sorry, um, but thank you for <laughs> clarifying. Okay, so um, yeah, it's it's definitely a uh, a very tricky time right now, um, and I think that when we look at the portfolio of companies that we look after. Uh, there are certainly ones that are more in the consumer side of business that are seeing some softness happen. They are seeing that uh, consumers in general have read enough in the news, seen enough tweets about uh, inflation and interest rates and all that, and they are moderating their behavior. And you can see that even in the statements that the larger companies are making. So whether it's uh, Amazon or Target or Walmart saying they don't have the right inventory or they may not be uh, uh, expanding as quickly as they thought. There's clearly something happening out there, 
I think what we don't know is whether it's a little R recession, sort of like a quick one that, you know, quick one, a quarter or two where it fixes things or a big R recession. But there's clearly something signaling that's going on out there. And I would say that on a relative basis, it's happening sooner than people expected because there was sort of this notion that, oh, maybe next year. I don't think if something if the economy is to slow down with some significance, it's probably not next year, but it's like next quarter or the quarter after that. So just how bad then do you think is the wreckage is going to be? How many more companies will have layoffs? How many people will get laid off? How many companies won't make it out of this? How long does this last? Yeah, in all candor, I don't think it's going to be that bad. There will be some high-profile situations where well-known companies are letting people go, and that will be painful, undoubtedly. But I think that, generally speaking, over the last couple of years, in 2020 and especially in 2021, private companies have been able to raise uh, uh, amounts of money that we've never seen in the past. And that puts their balance sheets in a pretty good condition. Now, they may have overhired, so they might trim a little bit here or there. But by and large, I think the majority of companies have the strongest balance sheets that they've had in a while, and in many cases have enough in the tank to get through a difficult period and to come out at the end of it. So I do think that we will surely see uh, some challenges. And perhaps the ones that will be most challenged will be the public companies because they obviously have to respond to a stock price. And the fact that right now investors want shorter term earnings or less losses in the short term. So I think we'll see more from those. But by and large, I don't see the kind of, quote, wreckage that maybe we saw in 2000. And if anything, I would expect this to happen more quickly, both the downturn and the upcycle to happen more quickly than in the past. Let's talk about some of these more high-profile situations, and I want to focus on Cisco. Cisco CEO Chuck Robbins was on the show earlier this week. I asked for his perspective. Take a listen to what he had to say. We are always planning for different scenarios, but we've been around long enough and been through enough downturns that we, we have playbooks and we know, how to, we know how to deal with those appropriately. Now, Cisco is one of the companies that hit its peak in the dot-com boom. And the stock, Mike, has never recovered. And what's interesting is you worked there for over a decade through the dot-com boom and bust. And I'm just so curious how you reflect on, on the fact that Cisco, you know, never has, at least from a stock perspective, gone back to what it was. Yeah. I think that there's a couple of things, though, that contribute to that. And it's true. By the way, it was incredibly unpleasant to go from 80-some dollars a share to like $9 a share in the span of six months when I used to work there. Um, but I think that there's a couple of factors that are happening. In Cisco's case, if you look at where Cisco is today, they're a single-digit grower, you know, a 5% grower, 3% grower. And fundamentally what happened there is, yes, there was a downturn. But in parallel with that, the technologies that they were purveying became much more broadly available, commoditized, competitive, et cetera, et cetera. And the company never really reachieved the kind of growth rate that uh, occurred during the pre-dot-com scenario. If you take another example like Amazon, au contraire, they did much better afterwards because they were able to strategically expand the, the, the product lines, the capabilities, the offerings, the sectors that the company was in. And so really what comes out of this is that 
you know, companies go into a difficult downturn like this, and when they come out of it, do they have the correct strategy for coming out of it? Most people will say exactly what Chuck said, which is, we have a playbook, we know how to deal with crises, we're going to cut this, we're going to cut that, and so forth. It's actually much more about how do you strategically align your business to come out of it than it is how to survive that period. And if you look at today's technology companies, the very, very large majority of them will survive it. The question is, do they have the strategy to thrive afterwards? And the strategy has to be aligned with the fact that things that may have been hot before are no longer hot later. I don't have a crystal ball. I, I couldn't say exactly what the differences will be, but I'm pretty sure that pre, the, the, the themes that mattered pre-2020 will not be exactly mirrored in the post-2020 era. And the companies that are more thoughtful and strategic about how to be aggressive and expansive in the recovery cycle will the ones that will benefit and look more like Amazon and the ones that stick to their knitting and do the same thing they were doing before will probably end up looking a little more like Cisco in terms of their stock performance. Interesting. Well, really appreciate having your historical perspective there. And I know you've been um, sharing some of that advice with founders as well. Mike Volpe of Index Ventures, good to have you back with us. Coming up, micro strategies, Bitcoin strategy. As crypto crashes, Judd's chairman and CEO Michael Saylor have any regrets? He joins me next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. for our crypto report with cryptocurrency and the market still seeing major fluctuations prompting companies as big as Coinbase to cut costs. Bitcoin down more than 24% over just the last five days. It's worst week in a year. Let's bring in Michael Saylor now of MicroStrategy for more on his take. And Michael, I know this is probably a rhetorical question, but 
do you have any regrets? <laughs> you know, um, we did a lot of uh, a lot of back testing, and I've gone back and I've looked at the numbers. And on August 10th of 2020, when we announced our $250 million Bitcoin buy, uh, since then, Bitcoin's up 72%. The money supply is up 17%. The NASDAQ's down 2%. Gold's down 9%. The S&P is up 9%. And the only thing that looks better than the money supply expansion is single-family homes up 26%. I couldn't have bought billions of dollars of single family homes. And so that's not even practical. So the bottom line is the Bitcoin strategy is 10x better than any other alternative. And so now I don't regret it. Uh, we've got $2.8 billion worth of Bitcoin on our balance sheet right now. And we feel like we're positioned well for when uh, the markets turn around. And our only other choice would be to give all the capital back to the shareholders, in which case we would have nothing and we would be struggling uh, to get by without any assets. Okay, how about this? Is cash still trash? Yeah, I mean, the money supply has expanded by 41% uh, since January 1st of 2020 when we went into this kind of COVID crisis. And we know that scarce, desirable assets are getting bid up in price. I mean, everybody wants to buy Rolex watches. They're buying luxury real estate. They're buying everything they get their hands on, creating shortages. So, you know, we, we are an institution. We have to take a 10-year view. And the only thing that's for sure is if we hold cash over a decade, we're going to have a negative real yield. The only question is how much. So we have to invest in something. And uh, we've chosen as a business strategy to fo focus on what we believe is the most exciting investment idea because it's a digital commodity that's absolutely scarce and only getting technically better every year. So are you considering buying more Bitcoin at these prices? I mean, is Bitcoin on sale? Yeah, I, th I think it is on sale. Um, I, I, you know, the, the number that I look at to figure out uh, sort of the a surrogate for the book value of Bitcoin is the four-year simple moving average because it trades billions of dollars a day. And so after 1,400 days of billions of dollars a day, that number is 21,700. Uh, Bitcoin touched that uh, in the March 2020, 2020 crisis. It touched it around 2017. It's touching it right now. Generally, it trades above there. You know, our strategy is uh, we're going to acquire Bitcoin with our free cash flows from time to time. So we're kind of dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin and we're going to hold the Bitcoin for the long term. And, uh, and so it wouldn't really matter whether the price was 10% more or 20% more or 50% more, uh, we're just going to progressively acquire more Bitcoin uh, because that's our strategy. But so you, you are know, gonna in terms keep of the big for sale, it, yeah, I mean, it's like not a bad price and we will keep buying more. Okay. What if it gets below that $19,511 number, which was that top of the 2017, I believe, bull run? Yeah, well, you know, is that, is that a time to panic? We don't panic. We have a we have a strategy. <laughs> We're not traders. If your time horizon is less than four years, you're sort of a trader. If it's in the months, you're definitely a trader. I'm not an expert trader. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know where the market's going to go week by week, month by month. 
Uh, if your time horizon is more than four years, you're an investor. And when your time horizon is 10 years, you're kind of a saver. So we have a very long-term 10-year time horizon. And our view is over the 10 years, uh, Bitcoin's going to be a good idea and it's just going to keep accreting in value. Uh, you know, I can't tell you whether it'll, it'll go down a bit here and there. It's In the near term, Emily, it trades like a high beta risk asset, and there's no denying that. Over the long term, we believe it's a low risk store of value asset. There's about 10 things that have to happen uh, over the next decade to make it a better asset. And we kind of know what those 10 things are. And so we're waiting and, uh, and biding our time. And we think that it's going to improve uh, as an asset class over time. And we're not in a hurry. So what do you see in the, let's talk, take this 10-year horizon, for example, we've seen what the Fed is doing with rate hikes. There's all of this concern. We're heading into a recession, whether it's a capital R or a lowercase r recession. What do you see on the road ahead? And how is that impacting your strategy to, you know, just buy more and hold? Yeah, so let's take the 10 sources of my pain. Um, there's no wash trading rules. So people can, they, they can sell their Bitcoin and buy it back and harvest the tax gain. And that's not the same with Apple. So if that gets fixed by the House Ways and Means Committee, that's a big plus for the asset. There's 520 unregistered crypto exchanges offering 20x leverage. That's a negative for the asset class. As they get regulated, and I expect they will, and as the 20x leverage disappears, that'll be a positive. There's 19,000 unregistered securities in the crypto industry cross-collateralized against Bitcoin. As, as those things have to, uh, have to get eliminated or they have to convert them into publicly traded instruments, that's going to decrease the volatility. There'll be a big shakeout. The wildcat banks like the, you know, the Terras and Lunas and Celsius, they actually create massive volatility. And as they get regulated and they disappear and they grow up and become institutionalized banks, uh, the asset class will mature. There's a lot of ignorance and fear. People think crypto is the same as Bitcoin. Uh, if they think that, that means they don't understand either of those two things. We don't have a stable coin, Emily, uh, like UST isn't a stable coin. Tether is an opaque uh, security no one understands. If we ever have an FDIC-issued stablecoin or something from a public uh, entity that's endorsed by the SEC, that's going to be very bullish for the industry. There's no spot ETF. Uh, I think it's only a matter of time before there is one approved. That'll be very bullish for the industry. The FASB accounting is detrimental. The lack of FDIC guidance makes it difficult, if not impossible, for banks to, to hold this stuff. We're waiting right. for clear SEC, CFTC guidance. And those 10 things, they're going to get cured over the next decade. They're just not going to get cured over the next 10 weeks. Okay, so how are you looking then more broadly at what happens to the industry after this? You know, we're seeing Coinbase and a number of different crypto companies having major layoffs. Do you think we'll look back on this moment as some sort of inflection point for the industry? And if so, how does it look different in the future? We're, we're crossing the chasm. Uh, there's about a trillion dollars in the asset class. 400 billion is Bitcoin. The other 400 billion is 19,000 unregistered securities. Uh, we're moving from the era of the offshore entrepreneur to the uh, to the onshore public institution. 
And it's pretty clear from Chair Gensler's comments that he made in the last few days that uh, they want to see all the crypto exchanges regulated. Uh, they want to they clean up this industry. The stable coin is going to have to be cleaned up as well. And uh, the winners are going to be the public investors and public banks and public companies. And the losers are going to be the wildcatters, you know, and the entrepreneurs that got, uh, got started that are flying by the seat of their pants. And I think it's essential for us to move from a $1 trillion industry to a $10 trillion industry. So I welcome it. I think the Bitcoin's been held back by its association with the, with the anything goes crypto industry. And as that gets regulated, then that's going to actually create a green light for public institutions and public companies to get much more heavily involved in Bitcoin and is going to catalyze the next leg of the bull run. All right. Michael Saylor, who apparently has no regrets. Michael, always good to have you here on the show, chair and CEO of MicroStrategy. Have a great weekend. new generation of media has been subsidized by advertising, making it cheaper or free for consumers. There's little reason to think that the metaverse will be any different. But are brands actually taking the metaverse seriously? Quick Take's Alex Webb walks us through what the future of advertising may or may not look like in the metaverse. We've heard a lot about the metaverse in the past year, but is it really going to be creating new digital economies or is it just about selling existing real world goods? Every new generation of media has been subsidized by advertising, making it cheaper or even free for consumers. From newspapers to the radio to TV and indeed the World Wide Web, there's little reason to think that the metaverse will be any different. Meta Platforms, that's Facebook to you or me, said so explicitly when it unveiled its vision for the metaverse last year. Businesses will be creators too, building out digital spaces or even digital worlds. And they'll be able to use ads to ensure the right customers find what they've created. So there we have it. For Mark Zuckerberg and co, the business model for the metaverse will be the same as it was for social media. Ads. Pair that with AR and VR's ability to track your eyeballs and maybe even gauge your mood, and it starts to become a little creepy. But to what extent are brands taking the metaverse seriously? Big names like Nike and Samsung are building virtual worlds. Facebook, Meta, has teams selling virtual billboards in those worlds. But they remain a relatively small slice of firms' overall marketing budgets. And you can see why. Just 67 million Americans will experience VR content at least once a month in 2022, and they'll be split between a range of different platforms from Roblox to Minecraft and beyond. Facebook alone had 263 million users in the start of this year in North America. Crucially though, most of the efforts have so far focused on selling real world goods. Nike wants you to buy actual sneakers, Samsung, real cell phones. The luxury brand Burberry might have made $400,000 selling digital skins with an associated NFT last year, but that's really just a rounding error in its $3 billion in annual revenue. In other words, they were a marketing gimmick to attract young crypto enthusiasts who you might hope as a brand are wealthy. Meta's ideal is for brands to pay to advertise virtual goods in the virtual world. That will let it monitor the entire customer journey from seeing the ad campaign to buying the product to then even seeing how they use it. It feels like we're a long way away from that happening just yet. If the metaverse takes off, there of course will be big money to be made in advertising. It just seems we're a long way right now from that happening and Facebook's vision is a distant prospect.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.